Hark! It's an 87th Precinct podcast. This is the only podcast in the world dedicated to Ed McBain's seminal series of police procedurals, which began in 1956 with Cop Hater and ended in 2005 with Fiddlers. There were 55 books in the series, and today's podcast looks at book number 44, Kiss. My name is Paul Abbott, and to review this book, I'm joined remotely again by Mr. Stephen Royston. Hello. And Mr. Morgan Brown. Hello there. And before we get going, I suppose it take it's a good opportunity to say hello to our listeners in the States, and especially anyone who's in any of the States that have got the terrible weather conditions that are going on, on top of everything else. I know we've got listeners in the States, and I know we've got listeners in Texas, so I hope you're all safe and well, and that uh-huh. you know, you've got the terrible weather conditions, but you also have terrible senators as well. So... <laughs> You know, I hope all of those things improve soon for you anyway. Right, uh, you can also look us up on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook or email us if you want using hark87podcast at gmail.com if you want to ask us a question or send us a comment or whatever. And you can keep uh, sharing and rating and reviewing. I would like that very much. But we're going to wind the clock back to 1992, which is 29 years ago, which seems very strange. Um, <laughs> and we'll see what's going on before we get stuck into into Kiss. Yeah, 29 years ago is 1992. <laughs> it seems odd. Yeah. Uh, anything about 1992 stand out for you, fellas? I'm not really sure. 1992, just, yeah, be just at high school, just um, high schooling yeah. away, I suppose. Yeah, oblivious to the, what turns out, lots and lots of stuff going on, really. Yeah. So... I've you know I've got quite a lot of um, stuff to chat through, so I'll go quickly through some things from 1992. It's an Olympic year, so Olympics happen. Oh, yeah. We've got, uh, I think this is relevant to Kiss. We've got the conviction of the mafia boss John Gotti, who was convicted of murder and racketeering in New York. He's a New York mafia crime boss. Uh, yeah. um, just keep that in mind for the fact that when we're discussing Kiss, it's the first I think 87th Precinct book to feature a mafia character. <laughs> I think that's probably right, isn't it? I don't think we've had uh, any before, yeah, have we? I think so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I can't think of one. I think we've had mentions in in the books about, you know, if you're Italian-American, people think you're in the mafia type thing, but this is the first one that actually... And I think that might be because John Gotti has been in the news, maybe, while McBain was writing it. Yeah, and I suspect Evan Hunter purposely, purposely, purposefully didn't bother with, maf- you know, kind of yeah. Italian-American crimes you know he wouldn't be yeah. interested would he really no thought. no i think it is his thing without being an american rather than an italian american and that yeah. mafia attachment to that he was always trying to keep away from yeah but yeah what else is going on in 1992 uh, loads of ira bombings which just seemed to be a matter of daily life sadly in in those days uh-huh. what else have we got we've got the formal declaration of the end of the cold war in february We've got the the Maastricht Treaty being signed, which is solidifying the European Union, <laughs> uh, which we're still dealing with now. We've got uh, a general election in the United Kingdom where John Major wins again. So four four in a row for the Conservatives. What else have we got? We've got riots in Los Angeles after after the acquittal of the officers in the Rodney King case from the, Course, yeah. the year before, I think. We've got riots in the UK, which is essentially in in all, several working class places in the north and the south 
it's, it's poverty, it's housing, it's you know police treatment of things. So it's uh, yeah, it's a bit of a tinderbox. Ah. Uh, what else do we have? Oh, something fun. We've got Black Wednesday, <laughs> which I barely understand because it's all about economics but is essentially when the government in the UK had to suspend trading on the pound and withdraw it from the exchange rate mechanism or something. Yeah, there was a big, there was a run on the pound. Essentially, yeah. But I'll tell you where you could listen. If you want to hear anyone talking about that and find out more about it, there's an episode of the very, very good Simpsons and Modern History podcast called Retrospecticus. I've done one thing. They split half the show about something that happened at a time a Simpsons episode came out and half the time about a Simpsons episode. Hmm. And they've just done one about Black Wednesday. So look up Retrospecticus, uh, which explains it much better than I ever could. What else have we got on here? Uh, we have oh, Bill Clinton defeats uh, George Bush and Ross Perot. So that's something that happens in America. What else happens? Oh, Mortal Kombat is released. <sighs> now, the really important stuff. Yeah, and, well, its lasting legacy is there's a new Mortal Kombat film yeah, coming out so, this so. year. Yeah, a new trailer just dropped, didn't it? Yeah. Wild. And they've given up any pretense of not just having ludicrous violence in it. So <laughs> it's, uh, And if they've got all the violence in the trailer, goodness knows what's going to be in the film. Uh, what else have we got? Oh, po- important stuff like Pope John Paul II issuing an apology uh, for the Inquisition against Galileo. <laughs> so in sure he was sure he's made up about that apology yeah. wasn't he yeah 400 years too late but better late than <laughs> never uh what else have we got uh, <laughs> it's, it's nuts isn't it just a little bit yeah oh we've got this is one of my favorite things i've always loved this it's uh, john major the uh, prime minister of the united kingdom started a thing called the cones hotline oh we did yeah yeah yeah. this is our (laughs) infrastructure story for this this episode which was essentially putting the onus on members of the public to ring up a phone number if they saw cones on a motorway that should have been taken away or something essentially that wasn't it yeah if you saw cones without any works going on you had to phone this number and yeah. basically nobody did. And it was just a huge waste of government money for a thing that nobody needed. So, it, 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 Luckily, that never happens these days, huge waste of government money on things that no one needs. No, indeed, no. <laughs> well, yeah. Thank goodness those days are behind us. Whilst it was a bit of a waste of money, I don't remember the Cones hotline costing twenty-two billion pounds. But uh, yeah. that's what I was going to say. We just scale, we scaled it up now to the point where you can't really comprehend it anymore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so well, anyway, we'll re- finish the review of nineteen ninety-two with uh, Dan Quayle. If you remember Dan Quayle, oh yes, yeah, correct, correcting the spelling of someone at a spelling bee that he was visiting. At. He corrected the spelling of someone's potato. He put an E at the end of it. Uh, it's like you're being filmed. Everyone's oh watching no. you and you're just... Oh, that's so embarrassing. <laughs> potato. Ah, classic. That's very funny, that. It is. It is. It's the, I mean, it's, it's the silly things that have stuck in my mind, like the Cones Hotline and Dan Quayle, but, uh, mm. you know, mm. I don't remember at the time recalling, hearing about John Paul II uh, <laughs> forgiving Galileo. Oh, no. So, actually, to finish off, that's the year that the Queen described as an Annus Horribilis. Oh, yeah. 
because basically lots of things went wrong in the royal family. Didn't they have the fire at Wh- Windsor Castle? Was that that year? Oh, yeah. Yeah, fire at Windsor Castle, Charles and Dice splitting up. Yeah. And, and Andrew and Fergie splitting up. And, it's um, been an endless horribleness. She probably said that, it's didn't like, she? It's like she's here. <laughs> Uncanny. Yeah, that was very good. You can get a job on spitting image. Yeah. <laughs> no, it, yeah, so goodness knows how she'll describe any year since then uh, it's not really got much better has it (laughs) yeah right uh on to mcbain world anyway because i've got quite a lot here because yeah some years we've had recently particularly with his illness and that um he's not done that much but this year 1992 we've not just got kiss he's also puts out a matthew hope novel called mary mary and he puts out a novel called scimitar published under the name John Abbott. (laughs) And it was another attempt to use a pseudonym that I think it used a couple of times for some short stories that nobody would really know about. And this is the only book published under John Abbott. Nobody knew it was him for a while. Anyway, the reason they did eventually learn that it was him is because it it concerned a sarin attack. So the the sarin gas, deadly gas, Mm. this book, Scimitar. And a couple of years later... There was the um, gas attacks on the Japanese underground. Oh, yeah. Which was sarin. And it. some people believed that it was a copycat crime based on this book. Yikes. But the book actually just contains a very a fictitious formula, uh. a, an authentic sounding one. So he'd, he'd worked with a chemist to come up with a formula for making sarin that wasn't quite the formula for making sarin to put into his book. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, these people in Japan who were part of a doomsday cult, it turns out. Um, it's It was coincidence, but there was enough that the attention was turned on this book. That's, that was one way to have your pseudonym debunked. Yeah, not necessarily the reason you'd want for, for your book to gather attention, is it? But uh... No, not not at all. But, uh, yeah, it's since been republished as, as under the McBain name, ah. like so many of those pseudonymous ones have anyway. Uh, well, so, but yeah, actually, I found a review of Scimitar by Newgate Calendar. Oh, hey. he's still kicking out. He doesn't know that it's Evan Hunter, Ed McBain, does he? Uh. You see, when he's re- reviewing it, and it starts with Scimitar. He knows it's a pseudonym. He says Scimitar by the pseudonymous John Abbott displays a fine sense of professionalism. Huh. Huh. Mister Abbott can write, however, you know, and it's so it's a quite a good <laughs> review from Newgate Calendar. So he knows it's a pseudonym, but I suspect he didn't know it was a pseudonym for Ed McBain. Oh. Otherwise, he would have surely given him a much worse, yeah. much worse review. I suspect he would have put the boot in a bit. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, there's Newgate Calendar. He still pops up now and again. Wow. And what else have we got? Right. So we've got TV stuff as well. Um, so we've got the Czech adaptation of Shotgun. Brock of Nietzsche. We've got the episode of Columbo called No Time to Die, which is the one that's based on uh, the wedding story, uh-huh. I believe. And we also have episode one of My Town, which is the the second block of Japanese adaptations of the 87th Precinct story. The ones that feature Ken Watanabe as Goro Morita, who is the Karela character. And I would love to see these. Yeah. Because they made loads of them. So the first one they adapt and that comes out in 1992 is um, Killer's Wedge. 
I mean, Killer's Wedge has been adapted loads of times. It's one of the most adapted of all of the stories. But I don't know whether they adapted it strictly to the book with both the plots in it, because actually Corella obviously doesn't feature much in Killer's Wedge. Oh, yeah. So we don't know. But it's so difficult to find anything out about these Japanese (laughs) adaptations. It was on on the 13th of October, 1992. It's um, on NTV, Nippon TV. Script by Toshio Kamata, but yeah, that's the start of a whole run of uh, another run of of um, Japanese McBain things. So that's good. Mm-hmm. Sure is. And I've got even more stuff because I found an article from 1992, and I'll just—it's uh, called the art. <laughs> the article is called "Even If He Does Say So Himself, McBain's the Best at What He Does." <laughs> you know, as uh, self-effacing as always. Indeed. But yeah, but it's a review, uh, or it's an interview in the Hartford Courant, which is obviously a local paper in Connecticut. And obviously it mentions that he's 65 years old. And I've just highlighted a couple of bits in here. Hunter, who looks a bit like an in-shape Walter Matow. (laughs) (laughs) Which I sort of get. I think he's a bit more handsome though. You know, no disrespect to Walter Matow, but I think Hunter wore at the age of 65 a bit more, um, a bit better. Yeah, talks with a tough guy, New York accent, it says. Uh, Five days a week, Hunter goes to work from about 10 a.m. until 5 or 6 p.m. at the computer in his office, which is a studio just a few dozen feet from his house, uh, which is up in near Silvermine River in Norwalk, Connecticut. And it mentions this, after pouring a cup of virile coffee, so strong you can imagine the cops of the 87th precinct subsisting on such a brew. It's a very descriptive little review type thing yeah. with stuff like that but it does end with and this is this is what's relevant to sort of the mood of the books it says i happen to believe the country is going to the dogs says hunter who describes his politics as liberal democrat my mood is somewhat gloomy and since drugs and crime i feel are the major problems in america today and since i happen to be lucky enough to be writing about crime i can say something about it i hope so there we are that's what's on his mind mm. at the moment that's more or less everything in the world of McBain. So, yeah, a few more things going on yeah, there. But we have had a, a listener question. Oof. Yes. I mean, it's from my brother, but it's still a listener question. He does listen. <laughs> so, yeah, so Gary has asked, and I think it's it's a good question, really. He says, do we think McBain is still moving with the times? Because wouldn't we have had DNA forensics and surveillance technology be more a part of it at this point? What do you think? Um, I don't know. I could be wrong. I still think DNA was perhaps not on hand for like local cops necessarily. I yeah. feel like it might have been more for kind of federal cases and, and yeah. the like for the most part at the time. I would, I, I would think in the early nineties, it would have just been too expensive for the likes of deploying in local matters. But that is complete guess on my part. Because I think if it if it was part of practice, then I am sure he would have updated the stories, wouldn't he? Yeah, I think so. From a cursory bit of research, DNA forensics really start to be used in the 80s. But I think Morgan's right. I think it's going to be on a federal level and for yeah. these huge high profile cases. Because it was huh. obviously, like anything, it's very expensive until yeah. it becomes commonplace. Huh. Yeah. And so I don't think it's there. But what I think perhaps is the issue here is it's not so much about him not moving with the time and reflecting that stuff but we've not had much lab stuff at all have we recently that is no, also not, true no. there's not been much looking at that kind of forensic process so uh, i guess 
yeah, we 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 don't really know whether he's moving with the times or not in that respect. Yeah, he seems to be focusing much more on the legal aspect of policing rather than the laboratory aspect of policing. And I think that's telling in that we've got new characters like Nellie Brand coming in as a district attorney mm-hmm. and we're seeing much, much less of Sam Grossman. Yeah, that's true. In fact, we're barely going to see him anymore, to be honest, uh, which is a shame. It is. But, yeah, but yeah, I think he's just, he's, he's just changed his focus slightly onto legal aspects rather than yeah forensic stuff so but i don't know we'll see what happens in the next few books i think dna stuff definitely comes up with his matthew hope books as well you know it was clearly something that was interesting in more wasn't it yes the, the yeah. legal aspect well talking about legal aspects let's get on to um kiss then which i could say comes out in 1992 it's, i'm not going to go far into the dedication because it's dedicated to his then wife mary van Although I don't understand the phrase, um, who worked so very hard for it. I don't really know what that means. He'd been married to Mary Van Finley, Nee Hughes, since 1973. He was stepfather to her daughter, Amanda. But we're only a couple of years away in the Hunter story from him to, uh, leaving her and uh, meeting uh, Jajika. So quite what that dedication means i don't know it's an odd one isn't it yeah right kiss then this was my first time reading it was it first time for anyone else uh, uh, no it was for me yes ah okay then so we're both uh we're both new to it i suppose right at the top of this one this is a real one where we've got to go spoilers ahoy because <laughs> there's no way we can talk about this without absolutely without spoiling stuff there's major twists there's a lot of character continuity stuff so if you haven't read it really do stop this go and read it then come back yeah we're gonna ruin it for you (laughs) that's the plan that's the basis of this podcast is let's ruin some books for people (laughs) well steve-o i know i always ask you if what you were you think of this stuff and you always say you don't remember the book (laughs) <laughs> from the first I, I, I could but... remember it apart from the big twist at the end which i only remembered pretty much as i was reading it i kind of knew there was one and then i thought <laughs> I, did, I never really stopped to think what the, it was and i suppose if i had, would have done i would have come a bit of a strange title isn't it do you not think i thought yeah i don't think it's it's not got as many opportunities to really use mean the, anything the, the, i don't know yeah, just to a, use the word in a different way you know um it just has lots of people saying oh, kiss. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, all, all a bit, bit of a strange title, but um, yeah. Um, it sadly doesn't contain anything at all to do with uh, the band Kiss. Uh, no, I kept hoping, but but not not a sausage. Not, yeah. not, a, not a slight mention of uh, Gene Simmons anywhere. <laughs> no, and this is a book that does contain references to Frank Sinatra and NWA. Yeah, together at last. Yeah, you could have had them sing it, singing a... Uh... Yeah, I wonder if NWA ever sampled a Sinatra record. I could probably <laughs> I find out. I don't know of one, uh, but you never know. <laughs> well, they're very layered, these things. You don't always spot That's them. true. But I was going to say, yeah, they, so there's a reference to a song sung by Sinatra called Kiss in this book. But, I, you know, I don't know masses about Frank Sinatra, no. but I did check it out because there's no copyright thing in the front saying these lyrics are from a song. So no. I think McBain's just made it up. Ah, right. So, so, yeah, there's a Sinatra song called Kiss Me Again, but the, the lyrics quoted in this book are not that. 
So I think perhaps maybe he asked to use the lyrics for, for permission and was probably told it would cost too much or something. So he's had to make it up. Could be. Would be my, that would be my guess huh. anyway. Fair dues. But it does mean um, I do I, I do know that the, the new, the fake Sinatra song crops up again in future books as well. <laughs> yeah. So oh, go on then, Steve. Can you give us a quick summary of the story then? I can, yes. Well, I suppose it's a lot more straightforward than many entries we've had recently in that it's essentially two stories running in parallel. There is an investigation into an attempted murder of um, the wife of a stockbroker. I think he is, isn't he? Um, Yeah. A rich stockbroker. And somebody's trying to murder his wife, or so she thinks. He's he's not so sure. Uh, And so there's that, and that is the principal story. And then running in parallel to that is the uh, trial of one of the men accused of murdering Carella's father. The other, the other murderer was he was he killed in the the siege in the last one. So this is his partner. So you've got. Quite interesting courtroom drama, essentially that um, yeah. is kind of alternately plays out with the um, with the main story, and that is it. You know, more often than not, in quite a few of the recent ones, you know, he's had kind of three or four or five plates spinning in these books, hasn't he? Hasn't he? Yeah. Uh, some to better effect than others, really. Huh. But this one seems to be slightly more stripped back and. Um, yeah, but be- better for it, I would say, actually. I've, I've very much enjoyed it. Yeah. How did you find it then, Morgan, coming to it uh, afresh? I, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with Steve all that the, the sort of relative um, simplicity of the structure does benefit it uh, for me. Um, yeah, I, I, I did enjoy uh, both strands. Um didn't see the final twist coming, but then I'm not I'm not a person who kind of like spends these novels trying to figure out what twists might be coming up. I quite enjoy just going along with it and being surprised. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that I, I I did enjoy it. I think the uh, the courtroom drama angle is is a bit of a different thing that we don't tend to to get in these. Uh, and yeah, it's an, an interesting one. Yeah, I agree. I think the courtroom stuff is brilliantly done. I will say, um, and I have read um, the Paper Dragon, the Evan Hunter book, the Paper Dragon, which is all based around a huge court case, and that's that's a big book, that one, and yet that kept me riveted. And so he's got the skills of doing this this courtroom reporting type storytelling, and it's it's at play in this, which is great, and also because you care about Corella, you care about his family. It, it's it's an interesting strand in the, in the book yeah. to be in there we've never had this sort of continuity of tale across books in the, in the way that this goes. Hmm. So yeah, I think, I think courtroom's great. Yeah. It plays to its strengths with dialogue, doesn't it? The courtroom bits, cause that's essentially what it is, isn't it? Just long passages of, uh, of dialogue with the cross examination and the, the courtroom yeah. mechanics. Yes. Yeah, so that, that very well. And is, you know, to say it's just that kind of essentially those two stories, it's a fairly, meaty sized book and um mm. you know you felt he, he did justice to like the main plot as well you know mm. with the uh, the attempted murder and then which has elements of kind of organized crime there's some bloke who's supposedly a private investigator that we ultimately learn's got 
like uh, underworld connections and so that, that was all quite interesting uh, as well yeah and we get plenty of ollie weeks thrown in there as well for good measure yeah well yeah he, he doesn't dominate like he does in some of the uh, the, the books um it seems to have made him a bit nastier in this one than yeah he is, I, see, I seem to remember yeah, he's kind of like a bit more of a jovial kind of buffoon in like some entries, certainly, isn't he? But this one, he's just, he's like awful. It, um, it yeah. almost seems like, like McBain feels like he's made him too sympathetic in previous entries. So he's, he's sort of um, just making sure that we do remember that he's kind of pretty vile as well. Yeah. Um, this time just to, yeah, ramping up the bigotry. Maybe he's making him vile because he, he does, certainly in the later books, doesn't he? He undergoes a bit of a uh, an epiphany. Well, not an epiphany, but you know what I mean? His character yeah, kind of like yeah. starts turning good, he's on doesn't a, he? on a bit of a road to redemption, isn't he? So, yeah, I yeah. think the, the, the worse he makes him to start with, the, the, the more uh, impactful that change is, I guess. Yeah, it's interesting in this one that they have him sort of talking to Parker, almost like he's <laughs> he's encouraging Parker to be worse than he is, and he's bad enough. Yeah, yeah. But Parker Parker's just a lazy, a lazy slob, really, isn't he? It's rather than, yeah, not quite. Rather than an outright bigot, but uh, yeah, it, certainly Ollie Weeks is not a good influence on him. No, <laughs> but mm-hmm. but he's sort of yeah, it's sort of the way he portrays it. Like Parker's, it's like when you meet a kid at school and it's like you're in awe of them because they seem like they've got it sorted or something or they have yeah. a particular attitude and they're usually dickheads because most kids are <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah it's interesting it is interesting but parker again in this book who does nothing in this book except at one point in a really good scene in one of the chapters basically solves the entire yeah, he does. thing <laughs> well that, that, that's the thing with parker he does he does do that sometimes doesn't he you know, he just, just, yeah, just a bit of one liner that just puts them on the right track to solving the case. <laughs> as long yeah. as he doesn't actually have to get up and do it himself. Yeah, yeah, as long yeah. as he doesn't have to do it. Yeah, he's not bothered, That's is he? It. As, as lazy and burnt out and jaded as, as, as he might be, he does occasionally um, actually have some some pretty smart ideas. <laughs> and in fact, the scene I'm talking about there is it's the start of chapter seven, and it's basically. Uh, it's a common thing that happens in the book. It's where they are, all the detectives are brought into uh, Burns, Lieutenant Burns' office and they have a chat about the case that's ongoing, that's troubling them. But it's brilliantly done in this book because it's like I don't, a soft reboot or it's like a really good introduction to the characters mm-hmm. that you're going to be with if you've never read the books before, despite the fact that actually it's telling an ongoing story in the court case that's come from a book before it. It's a brilliant chapter where or a scene in a chapter, even not a whole chapter, where he just he just really does these quick sketches of Kling and Hawes and Parker and uh, Arthur Brown and Bob O'Brien and Corella yeah. and Meyer, and it's so does it so well. You mm. could give that to anyone, and you'd, those people would have an idea about the characters they're going to be with if they were going to go back and read the old ones or carry on reading from there on. So that's that's I think another good point in this book as yeah. well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. And um, another thing you get in this as well, I think, um, which he does occasionally, but maybe not as much as he does in this, is see it from the criminal's perspective, don't you? There's a lot of scenes that totally exclude uh, the police and 
he ultimately uses that as a very clever means of springing the surprise on you at the end because you, you think you know everything that's going to play out and you, mm-hmm. you don't really question it. And then, yeah, you, you, you realise he's he's purposely been silent with kind of one of the characters, really. <laughs> but they're very good as well. And you kind of... Because there's like, there's like two baddies in this, isn't there? There's, yeah, one being a professional and one being just a an odious awful person yeah um, and so it's quite interesting seeing them uh, interact as well I thought not wishing to give away too much we're gonna have to yeah well it's an interesting set set of characters who you, you you're never gonna particularly like in the in the uh, sort of main investigatory story um, and yeah like you say he, he puts you with the characters yeah. who tell you what's gonna happen <laughs> and normally I'd hate that but actually when you get to the end and you get the twist, it's like it's it's worked really, really well in yeah, this book. Yeah, de- de- definitely. I've got some. Uh, I spotted a few interesting references in the in the book as well. I don't know if you guys uh, found anything particularly noticeable. Talks about his birthday again, doesn't he? I think he does that every single book at the moment. <laughs> yeah, um. birthday of great men. That's always in there and. He also goes to the Golden Lion restaurant, which he oh, has. Yes. Or yeah. he doesn't go. Corella goes to the Golden Lion restaurant, which was previously in Sadie when she that's died. Insane. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yes, that's a... Uh, nice throwback. Yeah, but, yeah. Um, what else have we got from the past? I don't know that there's massive stuff from the past. I thought the uh, an, an interesting new character is the chief of detectives, who um, I don't think he's cropped up before, has he? No, indeed, and I think that's a part of a reflection of the changing changing of the guard in the NYPD as well. So I've mentioned before that a couple of books ago, I think that the police commissioner of the of the early nineties was um, Richard J. Condon, Dick Condon, who was McBain's friend, used to be his sort of guide to the police of New yeah. York, and he became police commissioner, but only for a short while. So he was only in office until January 1990. So the guy who became police commissioner when this book was written was a guy called Lee Patrick Brown, who had come from Houston. And he was a a black man in in the role. And that's reflected in the book because they're talking about how he's appointed a white chief of detectives. Yeah. So we have a scene at the start where... Parker and Ollie Weeks are moaning about about the new commissioner, and then later on we meet this new chief of detectives who's been who's been brought was, in there. Yeah, it was just like a bit of a grizzled career detective kind of guy, isn't he? Probably a new New Yorker or a you know <laughs> equivalent yeah. uh, New Yorker through and through, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. So I think that's again reflecting real world real world changes there. I'll be interested to see, because obviously a police commissioner is appointed by the mayor of New York, I believe, who at the time was a guy called David Dinkins, who lost to Rudy Giuliani in 1993. So I'll be interested to see whether something happens with the mayor in Isola in the next couple of books. Maybe, yeah. Rudy Giuliani before he went completely mad. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Strange, isn't it? What happens to some folk? <laughs> yeah, um, but um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So no, it was quite quite a lot of um, interesting, like little asides, you know, real world commentary in here. Yeah, that was, was yeah good. I mean, my favourite thing in here is there's a point where they talk about someone reading the Guardian. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, that's quite a funny bit, isn't it? Because does he do a, a review or something? Well, essentially, what happens is the guy who is the lawyer for the Corella family, who is Henry Lowell, who will be back in future books is talking about, because he keeps going on about having this semi-British accent he's putting on the airs and he's spending time in London and he read this article in The Guardian and do forgive my use of the language, but it's the title of the article, of Wops and Cops. Now, that is a real article about Ed McBain and I've talked about it before because it's quite a good article for an interview with McBain. But clearly it's been playing on McBain's mind for the last two years. So it came in the 21st of August, 1990, this article came out in The Guardian. It's been playing on McBain's mind because he's gone and he's done this interview and then they've stuck this name of Wops and Cops on it. And McBain's saying in the book, he's giving the characters the job of saying he didn't realise quite how offensive that was. Why would this guy have put that on there? And to be honest, he's, I mean, he's completely right. I can't yeah. stand the title of that article. <laughs> <laughs> 1990 for crying out loud. Oof, yeah. So anyway, I think you get the impression that if McBain was ever to meet that journalist again, he'd probably punch him in the face. Yeah, it's a bit that, strange coming from a uh, like liberal left-leaning newspaper as well, <laughs> The Guardian. Yeah. Um, very odd. Yeah, but yeah, I thought that was uh, yeah a bit of a classic McBainism, wasn't it? Putting there a real world, something that he's got a bit of a beef with and just yeah. throwing it into a, uh, a scene. And I think as a result, there's a few British references scattered throughout. Yeah, I've I've always thought actually that, that, that he, he, he clearly knew he well, there must have been a very big readership in the UK because there oh, always yeah, seems yeah. to be plenty of British references that he throws in there, like fairly regularly, really. Yeah, there's a scene where they're talking about Guy Fawkes Day for some reason. Oh yeah, okay. yeah, <laughs> that, that's very funny as well. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's one, and then obviously the, the Golden Lion's supposed to be like a British themed mm. restaurant, isn't it? Some weird stuff like that in there. Just a few different things where he keeps talking about Britain. Um. <laughs> yeah. Well, my question is: Did anyone spot? Did anyone spot the name of the person who is actually Ollie Weeks' partner, which I've never heard mentioned before? No, well. And this may be the only mention of the cop who's supposed to be his actual partner, his mm. detective partner. I can't remember it, um, but yeah, but go on, far away. It's Detective Second Grade Jasper Loop. Jasper Loop, yeah. <laughs> That's a name. great name. That's an excellent name, yeah. If we need a Jasper Loop uh, spin-off series. Yeah, I was just thinking, yeah. yeah, that'd be excellent. Loop and Weeks. <laughs> no, it's it's as usual, it, it's, it's packed with stuff. And then we've got this stuff about Corella and the Mafia, which is, like I said at the start, is something new. And that Corella goes to get a favour from a Don. Yes, yeah, somebody who owes him a favour, doesn't he? He wants some information about this private investigator who's supposedly keeping an eye out on the woman who's who's, who's subject to these uh, murderous attempts. And then it has, obviously, it's a an excuse to do the Corella is a super cop in the sense of his moral duty and that he won't take a bribe, which I thought was interesting. Right, okay, what else have we got here? Oh, we have another another appearance of the Preacher at one point, briefly. And we have a good Hill Street Blues reference as well, if anyone spotted it. Which which was that? Murchison, at one point, mm-hmm. saying to them, be careful out there. 
All right. Yeah. <laughs> and then Bain talking about life imitating art as well. <laughs> I, I assumed that was a Hill Street Blues thing. I've never actually seen Hill Street Blues, so I wasn't 100% sure, but that was, that was what I was guessing it was. Oh, yes, it, it definitely is, yeah. He'd, it says he, he'd been watching too many television reruns, life imitating art, though most often art imitated life, and occasionally art imitated art all too successfully. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's not going to let it go. <laughs> <laughs> so i mean yeah there's all sorts going on there's reference to a thing called sunday in the park with george which is a sondheim musical i've never heard of ever heard of that one morgan uh, the title rings a bell but i don't really know anything about it at all i must admit no i'd, I'd, I'd never heard that one at all and we have a description of the city at one point where saying about how the rivers meet and where the seawall is which doesn't make any geographical sense whatsoever <laughs> if you follow what we're supposed to think the city is like because the rivers wouldn't meet where the sea is and you know anyway <laughs> stuff like that <laughs> but yeah i mean do we discuss the twist at the end i don't know we perhaps we don't really need to i don't know well, maybe, maybe not maybe not would, would be a shame to uh, spoil it for anybody but um yeah, it's quite funny because like one of the characters, like the uh, the, the the lady who's subject to the uh, uh, the murderous attempts, you just yeah, you can't quite understand how on earth she can be that daft to be taken in by this fella. Yeah, and yet um, yeah, she's clearly got some uh, plans of her own, which you only find out out at the very end. I suppose the other. Well, it's not a twist at the end, but the other thing you've got to deal with is the court case outcome, uh-huh. which is, it's an interesting thing. Well, I mean, how did you find that, Morgan, that, you know, we've we've gone through this and we're rooting for Corello. It seems like it's, we've had this interesting court case and then basically the, the guy's acquitted. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, w- would it have been sort of dramatically satisfying if we'd gone through all the, the court case and then he'd just been found guilty? I don't know. Maybe it's it's better for the, the ongoing drama that, 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 that he is acquitted. Yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. It, was a, it is quite a tense sort of um, subplot that all the way through because although the lawyer is, is doing a, a solid job, that there's... There are a few kind of um, solid bits of uh, undermining kind of um, arguments yeah. from, from the defence, and it's it is it is quite a stomach churner. And then yeah, it's a it's a real kick in the teeth, isn't it? Yeah. So implications for years to come, really. Uh, yeah, absolutely. It's not a happy ending <laughs> by <laughs> any means for anyone, really, in this at all. Yeah, sort of case main case not quite sort of wrapped up completely to to this full satisfaction they, they they wrap it up to some extent yeah it sort of it burns itself out a little bit doesn't it um and it's just it all you know someone's lit a fuse it all burns up and that's how it ends yeah. it's they're left picking up the pieces as much as anything although i will say there's a fantastic sequence there's one action sequence in this book which is where corella and maya go for mm. They, oh, it's brilliant! Breaking into the apartment, to they've got a no knock order to try and get this guy, which is really good. So it's not on the scale of the siege from the book before, but it's a it's a really good bit of them in the dark, shooting and listening and waiting, yeah, counting the, bullets, uh, yeah, all that stuff. That's great. Yeah, just the psychology of it and uh, the the fake order, the charge, and yeah, yeah, great stuff. 
it's really, really good. So I think we better get towards uh, summing up for this one then. And I've got a couple of contemporary reviews. I found quite a few, but I'm not going to read them all out because they're generally of the same opinion. What have we got? We've got Marilyn Stacio in the New York Times. She's saying, along with his bleak sermon on the collapse of urban civilization, the author delivers the rest of the goods, wired action scenes, dialogue that breathes characters with heart and characters who eat those hearts and glints of unforgiving humor. And this time, besides the usual mastery display of police procedures, there is also the grim pleasure of watching the criminal court at work. Call it Isla or call it Hell, Ed McBain owns this turf. Mm-hmm. So that's probably one of the best reviews he's had for, for ages, that little mm. paragraph. Yeah. Uh, we've got Thomas Morowitz in the Washington Post. McBain practices the science rather than the art of holding our attention. While the telling flaunts its immediacy and cleverness, it does so at the cost of resonance. That's not quite so good. I don't, know if, I don't really know what that means either. I don't know if it means anything. <laughs> yeah. Well, the problem with this review is he then compares it to another book he's reviewed in the same article, which doesn't help you when you take it in isolation. So what's the point? That's not. That doesn't help the reader. No. Anyway, <laughs> what else have we got? We've got Michael Painter in the Irish Times, who talks. He references particularly the scene where they're in the office in in Burns' office. And we've got, it is an awesome achievement on McBain's part to have kept the series so vital and vivid for so long. There have been highs and lows, but generally a consistency of intent has overcome all and every reservation. Ask the fans who are legion. And Christopher Wordsworth in The Observer has said, The city's naked underbelly, disenchanted venal cops, a nasty barstool seduction, a stakeout, a terrific final twist. Familiarity will never breed anything but growing admiration in McBain's Uh case. Generally, very, very good reviews. So, yeah. Actually, there's an in- interesting one there that we haven't really talked about. Fortunately, it's not it's not absent, but there's not as much dirty, porny sex in this one. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah. Um, there's yeah. a little bit. <laughs> but um, not quite. Uh, it's, yeah, so it's, no, it's yeah. been all too common, all, all too common recently. Yeah, the yeah. last three particularly, there's been a, a, a lot of that, and it's it's definitely reined in this time, which is most welcome. Yeah. Okay, then. Well, I think I'll come to you then, Morgan, for your summary and, and, and score. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it's, it's a really strong entry in the series. Um, simplifies things a little bit, gets rid of some of the things we've not liked from the, the last few books. The, the sort of the, the dark tone is still there, but um, it feels like it's playing a lot more to to McBain's strengths, whilst also adding some new things like the courtroom drama, which we've not seen before, but which is a really welcome addition. Uh, I think it's it's an excellent entry into the series, and I am going to go in with a strong score of eighty four police shields. Eighty four, excellent. Okay. Well, we'll have a first-time reader, repeat reader, first-time reader sandwich. So, Steve-O, you can go next. I would concur with uh, with that, I think. Uh, yeah, very strong entry, very much enjoyed it. Um, all the better for being a bit more straightforward. Um, moments of drama and excitement and quite like the focus on the criminal and their kind of motives and mm-hmm. both of them as well. Uh, so yeah, I think I would. I think I would go uh, eighty-five police shields. I think it's a Ooh. bit of a 
eight, eight and a half out of ten, definitely kind of um, uh, level, really. Yeah. Well, I concur pretty much with the pair of you as well. I, I'm hard pressed to think what I would need in it to make it a perfect McBane, mm. a perfect eight seven precinct. I don't know what you could add to it. I don't think it is perfect. No. I think it's very, very good. I, I, I think, yeah, if you were being really fussy, then you know, and you wanted a bit of everything, then aside from the court drama, maybe not too much happens to the to the uh, the actual cops in this in terms of drama yeah. in their lives. Maybe it's maybe. Lacking a little, yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe lacking a bit of that, and maybe the crime itself, whilst it's very engaging, isn't perhaps as uh, flamboyant as some of like the, yeah. you know, like the deaf man kind of ones, which they're so ridiculous. They kind of just uh-huh. pull you in a little bit more, don't they? Just because they're just so yeah, yeah. outlandish that they've got a certain appeal, <laughs> if you know what I mean. Yeah, no, you're absolutely uh, so, right. So, um... so that's perhaps in order to make it. An absolute, you know, but even at eighty-five, you know, you're you're very near the uh, very high-scoring. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think, yeah, the only thing I'd like, perhaps, out of that, like you say, is a bit more um, of the other cops interacting. But you know, there's so much in it, and I'll tell you what, of course, what it does as well. And I think perhaps the thing we haven't really mentioned is it's a it is a very interesting examination still, again, of um, issues of race in the city. And even though it's not involved necessarily in the in the main investigation plot, it's there all through the court case. It's there with Ollie Weeks. It's it's all there. It's still something that McBain's addressing at a time that where clearly it's in a country where we've got these riots and all sorts going on. It's it's inescapable, and it's an interesting way to address it through the the courtroom drama as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, God, I really like the courtroom drama, and I really like the Paper Dragon, and I'm terrified now that I'm going to start reading books that are just courtroom oh, dramas. We'll have to, I'll start uh, reading John Grisham stuff. Yeah, I was going to say, I was just trying to remember, remind myself the name of the. Yeah, but you, but you can see why why novels like John Grisham's and whatnot make like really watchable films, don't they? They just lend themselves to yeah drama and kind of. Um, it's almost like watching sport, isn't it? Because it's, <laughs> yeah, it's all about the, the push and pull and the, yeah. the or will this quite make it? Oh, are they going to say the right thing? How are you going to be? How feel? How are we going to feel when we leave this scene? Yeah, exactly. You know, you, you know, in the same way of sport, you know, you've got two very skilled kind of lawyers, you know, and it and it and it and it all turns on one or two phrases doesn't it or one or two yeah. moments you know and, and and when it starts in the same way you know any sports match or game you know you just you're just not quite sure how it's going to pan out and it can de- and it can and you have the heart in the mouth yeah and it, and it can defy logic quite frequently as well <laughs> especially while you're waiting for the verdict to be returned yeah so. yeah but anyway, that means just to continue the upward trend, I'm going to give it 86 police shields, which Marvelous. gives us a very simple score of 85. No rounding required. <laughs> so there we go. That does put it up in the uh, sort of top echelons, I think. Yeah, I've just been yeah, looking at the Kenneth graph here. We've had, we've had, with the exception of tricks, we've had some fairly, in the scheme of things, low scorers. Ever since ice, really. Yeah, um, yeah. Like tricks has what, been a standout recently. One, two, that's... three, four, five. Yeah, we've had six books in a row, and only one of those has scored in the top half. I would say. 
Uh, yeah. So that this is a bit of a bounce back. Um, Despite the fact that it's got an ongoing court case story in it, it's, it is one where I'd say you could give this to a new reader and they'd, they'd enjoy it yeah. as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah. there's that as well. Huh. Yeah. Nice. Which, which is not something we've been able to say about um, some of the yeah. recent ones. Smashing stuff. Okay, well, we'll round off here and be back with the next book in the series, which is Mischief. That will be our next episode. We'll also be back for our bonus episode with our look at some silly things from 1992 and the book covers of of the original editions of this. But until then, I'm going to say goodbye. Goodbye. And so is Steve-O. Goodbye. And so is Morgan. Fairly well. Goodbye.